from News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. When it comes to closing the educational achievement gap, access to the internet has become a major factor. In 2019, 67% of California's K-12 students had reliable access to computing devices, and by 2020, 71% had consistent internet access. Those numbers are much lower for low-income and minority students. Since the pandemic, however, there has been a concerted effort by federal, state, and local school districts to ensure all students have computing devices and internet access. The question is, has it made a difference? We'll first ask experts from the Public Policy Institute of California and a California State Legislative Analyst Office. Then we'll talk to the directors of technology at a large urban school district and a small rural district in the valley and get their take on whether we're making any progress in closing the digital equity gap that exists between K-12 students in the valley. That conversation in a moment. Funding for the Maddie Report is made possible by grants from the California Emerging Technology Fund, leaders in the quest for digital equity. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Fresno State Associated Students, Inc., students serving students. BNSF Railway, moving our economy for 160 years. And the wonderful company. The Maddie Report is also made possible thanks to contributions from Harris Ranch Inn and Restaurant and E&J Gallo Winery. From the Maddie Institute, the Public Policy Institute for the Valley's four public universities, this is the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. One takeaway from the COVID pandemic has been how significant broadband access has been for a myriad of activities, whether it's telework, telemedicine, e-commerce, and the like. But you know, no area is probably where it's been more important, particularly for those of us who are parents, as when it comes to education and the ability of students to access uh, in the internet, either you know by having internet connection via broadband or with devices, uh, it's been a very big issue. And the government's trying to address that at various levels, federal, state, and local. Our guest is Joe Hayes, who's with the PPIC, who's co-authored a report uh, entitled "Achieving Digital Equity for California Students." And so we're very delighted to have him with us today. Welcome to the Maddie Report. Thanks for having me, Mark. So Joe, I want to ask you, um, you know. A lot of federal and state dollars have been thrown at this problem, made you know more serious by the pandemic. The, the federal government has had initiatives to expand broadband access in the tune of about $40 billion over the years. Uh, since 2020, California, the state, has allocated about $6 billion. And that's not even including what all local school districts are doing uh, in this area. When I'm, the question I guess a lot of people have in their minds is, are we seeing corresponding improvements in student success? Uh, sure. Well, to be clear about this report, uh, written with my colleague, Neil Gall, uh, we focused on the period from spring 2020, at the outset of the pandemic, to spring 2021, a year later. So the charge, uh, changes that we document would have come from uh, efforts of local school districts, municipalities, counties, and also benefited from the federal dollars you mentioned. The state money uh, that you referred to, the $6 billion allocated as part of SB 156, that passed in July of 2021, so th those, those effects are not going to show up in, in the report that we did, uh, but I'm happy to talk about uh, what we were able to measure. Um, what we found was somewhat encouraging. We, we did see increases in internet access uh, across all demographic groups, and in fact, uh, greater increases among groups that have historically had less access. So um, in, in this case, uh, Black and Latino households 
low-income households and households headed by somebody without a college degree. Uh, so just to give a, a couple numbers here in the spring of 2020, 71% um, of all California households with school children had reliable internet access. And then by the next year, that had increased to 75%. Um, breaking that down a little bit among households headed by somebody with less than a college degree, the rate increased from 67 to 72%. So it's a big increase, but that yeah. just puts them on par with the state average. Uh, households going up from 57 to 66%, a big jump, but still now you know well below the state average. Right. Uh, more privileged. But it's trending, but it's trending in, in the right direction. I mean, you know, it's it's improving. For sure, and, and so the, the, the thing that's encouraging about that is that, that um, uh, those those percentage point increases that I mentioned are bigger than the ones you saw um, in the more privileged groups, the, the white, Asian, uh, high-income, uh, college-educated households. Those all saw smaller percentage gains, but then end up maintaining much higher rates of internet access. Yeah, yeah because they already yeah. have they already have internet access, for, you know, in large part. Let me ask you about devices, though. I mean, you have access to the internet, but if you don't have a device, it doesn't matter. So what about devices. Right. So since the spring of 2020, the state had established a number of partnerships with um, internet service providers, technology companies to deliver devices, uh, including Wi-Fi hotspots. Um, and in addition, 95% of districts reported uh, having purchased new devices for their students. Um, and so these efforts did pay off. Um, they, they appear to be more dramatically successful than the, the internet connection activities. Um, in aggregate, in spring, spring of 2020, we had 68% of California households with children um, reporting reliable device access. And then by the, a year later, this had shot up to 82%. Um, again, our, our report breaks down how that, um, how that uh, households uh, with school children among uh, the different uh, groups compared with that. Um, and again, the, the takeaway is, is mainly that um, more disadvantaged groups had higher percentage point increases, but that um, the the end result is, is is still a glaring digital equity gap. Um, each of the, the counterpart groups, the, the more uh, privileged groups, had access rates of close to ninety percent at the end of that. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's you know, it's actually not surprising. Though, like I said, the, the gap seems to be closing a little bit. I want to ask you. We've got about a minute left in the segment. I want to ask you about. Um, so who can fully participate uh, when it comes to distance learning? So we're talking about not just broadband access, but also you know, having a device to, to access the internet. Right, so to take full advantage of it, you need to have uh, lab access to high-speed internet and a device. So we looked at the intersection of those groups as well, what we're calling full digital access. Uh, so in the aggregate, uh, the households we're looking at with school children improved from 61% uh, having both of those things to 71% having both of those by the spring of 2021. It's, that, that's good news, but it also means that nearly three in 10 such households lacked either internet access or a device. And again, the, the, the breakdown takeaway is that bigger, uh, bigger substantial gains uh, among more disadvantaged groups traditionally, uh, but really not quite catching up among, uh, among the marginalized groups compared to the more privileged groups. Okay, well, when we come back, um, undoubtedly we're seeing some improvements. When we come back, we're gonna talk about some of the major gaps to fill that, uh, fulfill that digital divide, close that digital divide rather. Uh, so how, what's it gonna take? That conversation in a moment, this is The Matter Report. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening to this program. A functioning democracy requires a well-informed electorate. Indeed, there's nothing more important. And by taking the time to become better informed, you're not only supporting fact-based decision-making, but you're doing your part to strengthen our democracy. Indeed, Thomas Jefferson once wisely noted that the best defense of democracy is an informed electorate. 
So thank you for being an engaged citizen and helping make the San Joaquin Valley and California better and our nation a more perfect union. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kevler with the Maddie Institute. You know, as noted by our guest, quote, the COVID pandemic has shown digital connectivity is critical into student learning. For those of us who are parents, we say, yeah, no kidding. Um, we're talking with Joe Hayes. He's with the Public Policy Institute of California. And he recently co-authored an article entitled Achieving Digital Equity for California Students. You know, I'm just wondering, Joe, you know, what is stopping us from achieving universal broadband access? Lack of infrastructure and affordability are the key constraints at the moment. Um, not surprisingly, for instance, rural areas suffer from a lack of infrastructure. Uh, ISPs are often reluctant to spend the money to build connectivity in areas when the number of subscribers is unlikely to provide a return on that investment. Um, but our mapping also shows that uh, there's gaps in connectivity in urban areas, and not surprisingly, these track pretty closely with income. Uh, even if the service is available, it's often out of the price range of many households. Yeah, and so you see situations like in rural areas, uh, poor rural communities in particular, they must be really hit by this. Um, the other ones are having the biggest problem, I would assume. Um, you know, let me ask you this. You know, so the government's trying to step in here and trying to make sure that everybody has access to the inter internet. Um, what is the government doing at the various levels, federal, state, local levels, to kind of close that digital equity gap? Well, to address the infrastructure issue, uh, the FCC has put $20 billion into the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, and that's a provider's bid to deploy broadband to homes and small businesses in historically unserved areas. Uh, on the affordability side, in May 2021, the FCC launched the Emergency Broadband Benefit Program, offered a broadband discount up to $50 a month. That expired at the end of 2021, but it was replaced by the Affordable Connectivity Program, ACP, which offers support to eligible households, but at a reduced amount of uh, $30 per month. Uh, on the school side, um, more than 400 California school districts have applied for um, uh, ECF, or Emergency, Emergency Connectivity Fund uh, dollars since uh, summer of 2021. And that's provided devices to uh, over a million students and uh, connected nearly a million students to broadband uh, during the 2021-22 school year. Yeah, so you're seeing a, a lot of, you know, a lot of efforts at the federal, state, local level to do this. And, and I know in your report, you actually cited a few that are, that are from the Valley, which I found really interesting. Um, Fresno Unified was one. What's happening at Fresno Unified? And uh, what can you tell our audience about the situation there? Fresno Unified had identified earlier on the need for long-term off-campus internet access, uh, particularly in the southern regions of the city. Uh, so the district managed to use its fiber optic backhaul, uh, plus employing school, uh, school buildings themselves as towers uh, to deploy its own private LTE service. So that uh, was successful in covering about 20 square miles of territory and more than uh, 6,500 student connections. Yeah, there was also another one you cited was a much different district, Lindsay, um, also in the Valley. What did you find there? Right, so Lindsay Unified over in Tulare County uh, also perceived the need to provide service off campus and moreover outside of school hours for distance learning. Um, and I should note that they started their project back in 2012, 2013. Um, they built a community Wi-Fi network to deliver high-speed internet to students in their homes. It also re relies on a private LTE network. And uh, the district is currently supplementing that coverage with uh, citizens' broadband radio service in order to cover more densely populated areas. An example of, of what they call redundancy, building redundancy into the system. It, so it sounds a little bit like these school districts are almost acting like the libraries of yore. I mean, you know, you're connecting people to information. Is that a fair analysis or comparison? 
there's a number of different models. We're actually doing um, a study right now, interviewing a lot of the, as many of the local initiatives as we can, and uh, the, the the models are are pretty varied. But um, yeah, I mean that's a that's a great analogy. Yeah. And so let me ask you this: so We got about a minute left, you know, in this segment. I want to ask you about um, what state, and local, and and even private agents are doing to kind of reduce that digital equity gap among students. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, how do we how do we begin to work on closing that gap? Well, so getting back to the two major constraints, infrastructure and affordability, um, one thing we've identified is better data and mapping is going to be crucial to identifying existing gaps in coverage. And, and well, wouldn't, wouldn't ISPs already have that mapping or, or no? They do. In fact, the FCC maps that, that everybody's, um, almost everybody's using uh, are informed by um, information that the ISPs are required to submit. The problem with that is that um, ISPs have an incentive to uh, shall we say, overstate the, the coverage that they're providing. And so a lot of times uh, it's impossible for other smaller uh, providers to get in there if an area is, is, looks like it's covered uh, currently by an ISP. So um, an executive order at the state level and the Broadband Data Act of 2020 at the federal level both mandate improvements to data collection and mapping tools that inform internet access. And I think that's going to be crucial for the process. Yeah, that's going to be very important. And I should say that, that ISP stands for Internet Service Provider. And I know that sounds relatively simple to an expert like you, Joe, but for someone like me, that's something I have to actually think about. I want to I thank, uh, thank our guest, uh, Joe uh, Hayes with the PPIC for, for being with us. Um, up next, we're going to talk about what California could specifically do as a state to address this problem. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Now, in 2021, the governor of the legislature reached a three-year, multi-billion-dollar broadband infrastructure agreement. What exactly is in that spending plan? Our guest is Brian Metzger. He's an expert in technology and broadband issues with the nonpartisan legislative analyst office. Welcome back to the Matty Report. Thank you for having me. So, so Brian, uh, what's in this new spending plan? This this 2021 multi-year broadband infrastructure agreement. Sure. So as part of the 2021-22 spending plan, the administration and the legislature agreed to spend $6 billion over three fiscal years on broadband infrastructure. Of the $6 billion, about $4.3 billion is federal funding from the American Rescue Plan signed into law in March of 2021. And the remaining $1.7 billion of available funding is from the state's general fund. That's a lot of money. So I'm just wondering what kind of projects and programs are going to be funded by that spending plan? A lot sure. of money. Yeah, a lot of money. Uh, about three categories of broadband projects or programs in the agreement. Uh, the first project is what's called a statewide open access middle mile network. It's a network of fiber optic cables available across the state for internet service providers to provide communities and households with broadband access. Uh, the state appropriated about $3.25 billion in federal funding for this network uh, in 2021-22. Uh, second set of projects are last mile projects. That's projects that connect the middle mile network to communities and to households. Uh, the state appropriated about $2 billion for those projects, which is about $1.1 billion federal funding and the rest state funding. Um, and that's provided to the California Public Utilities Commission, or the CPUC who's going to distribute those uh, last mile project grants through its California Advanced Services Fund program. And uh, the last part of it was for the Broadband Loan Loss Reserve Fund. That's a fund that's also administered by the CPUC and it helps local entities and nonprofit organizations to obtain better financing terms and potentially get larger loan amounts uh, for local projects. And yeah, that's about 750 million general fund. 
Yeah, a lot of people think. Excuse me. A lot of people think you know the the, the PUC. They don't they don't think of it about about broadband. They think about utilities, but but they have a big big role to play here. Um, I want to ask you. You know, is more money going to the more populous urban counties, or is it going to the more sparsely populated rural counties? Well, specific to last mile projects, the state law um, SB one fifty six specifies that the CPUC has to split the allocation of funding equally between rural and urban counties um, until at least June 30th of next year. So you get about a billion dollars for rural counties and a billion dollars for urban counties. Uh, each of those counties will receive an initial allocation of $5 million, and the rest is based on how many households uh, within that specific group don't have access to broadband internet service of a certain speed. And so, um, you know, the CPUC just released its you know, final decision on this a few months ago. And in effect, it provides a, a little bit more funding per household in rural counties, just mm -hmm. because there are fewer of those um, right. and they cost more to build. Right. Yeah, you'd, you'd, ex you'd expect that. Um, you know, you did talk about, you know, broadband infrastructure. And, and for those of us that aren't that technically literate, um, you went over some things about long haul, middle mile and last mile. And I'm wondering if you can kind of briefly explain those those concepts. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, long haul broadband infrastructure is often comprised of, you know, high capacity cables that span hundreds or thousands of miles and typically connects countries or connects, you know, very large regions. Middle mile infrastructure is a little bit shorter. Uh, it's tens, if not hundreds of miles at a time, and it provides more of a local Internet backbone like for a state. Um, and then your last mile infrastructure are all of the cables, the poles, the wires that connect that middle mile network to your home or your local library or some local institution. Yeah, yeah, and that, that, that last mile, I'm guessing, is also pretty expensive. It's just, you know, the last mile, but it can be pretty expensive uh, to deal with that. You know, there's also something that you talk about in your report, um, a California Advanced Services Fund. I'm just wondering, you know, what is it? How is it funded? How will it improve uh, states, the state's broadband infrastructure? Sure. Uh, so the CASIF, with the exception of that new fund that was created with the $2 billion, it primarily uses a surcharge on revenues that is collected by telecommunications companies mm -hmm. um, to fund broadband grants. And so, for example, you know, the broadband adoption account within the CASIF, it awards grants to increase after school access to the Internet, particularly in low income communities and other communities that have a demonstrated need. So those accounts that are within the CASIF program, they work in tandem with the recent agreement on broadband infrastructure. So there's a lot of, mo mo lot of money flowing uh, to this issue for sure. Well, up next, we're going to talk a little bit more about what the California legislature is doing to close the digital equity gap that exists. This is Mark Kepler with the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Brian Metzger. He's an expert in technology and broadband issues with the nonpartisan legislative analyst office about recent state action to improve the state's broadband capacity. And as we know, through the pandemic, how important uh, having uh, internet access it really is. So I want to ask you, Brian, uh, when you're discussing broadband infrastructure, you, ref you refer to unserved communities and underserved communities. Can you explain the difference? Sure. Uh, so unserved households are those that don't have an internet access um, at the federal benchmark speed for broadband. That's set by the Federal Communications Commission, and it's approximately 25 megabits per second download speed and three megabits per second upload speed. So to give a perspective, that's going to allow, you know, several devices within a household to download files, telecommute, um, attend school remotely, those sorts of things. An underserved household is a household that doesn't have access to Internet service, but at a higher threshold speed typically 100 megabits per second download speed, and in some cases, uh, up to 20 uh, megabits per second upload speed. Those higher speeds are intended to, in essence, future-proof 
broadband infrastructure projects. Yeah, anybody knows if they have multiple family members all trying to get on the internet at once, you can have issues and then that really can be problematic because you know, mom or dad are working, they're telecommuting, the, 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 the student, the, the daughter or son is trying to do their homework. It's, yeah, it can create, a, you do this first, you stay off and uh, everybody's got to get in line as it were. Sure. You know, when, you, when I look at your report, you're talking about uh, California counties with the highest percentage of unserved and underserved households are basically in the rural areas of the state. So I'm wondering, does that mean this really isn't a problem for the state, statewide? This is kind of an isolated problem? Well, based on our review of the CPUC data for unserved and underserved households, we can see the lack of broadband access is a problem statewide. So as you mentioned, rural counties do appear to have a higher percentage of unserved and underserved households. For example, in Siskiyou County, about 24% of households were unserved and about 85% of households were underserved as of December 31st of 2020. But there are approximately only about 20,000 households total in Siskiyou County. When you look at a larger urban county like Los Angeles County, you have 3.4 million households total. And so a lower percentage still equates to a higher number of unserved and underserved households. So taking that same data set, you have 47,000 households that are unserved, even though that's only 1% of the total and 54,000 households are underserved. So, yes, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Ahead. Yeah, no, numbers can be a little bit misleading when you look at those percentages. For example, looking at your report saying underserved households, 74% in Alpine County, the state average is 3%. So that sounds that sounds terrible, but Alpine County is, is, is pretty small. So sure. yeah, it's, it, the percentages can be a little little deceiving, um, though it's still obviously a big big problem for, the, for those rural communities. I wanna ask you, um, you hear a lot about the need uh, and challenge of addressing that last mile. We talked about that a little earlier. What's the legislature doing to address that um, last mile of broadband projects? Sure. So the legislature passed several bills to help expedite some of those last mile broadband projects. Of course, Senate Bill 156, which is the implementing legislation for the broadband agreement, was a critical piece of legislation just to define the allocations of broadband funding and define those benchmark speeds we just talked about. Um, other legislation, such as Senate Bill 4 from Senator Gonzalez, directed the Governor's Office of Business and Economic Development uh, to streamline permitting and approval processes. Um, other bills, for example, Assembly Bill 41 from Assemblymember Wood requires Caltrans to put conduit cable uh, you know, uh, availability into certain existing construction projects. So there are other bills pending, but these pieces of legislation are intended at least to move projects along. Yeah, I think a lot of people are always worried about, you know, is the state kind of getting in the way with regulations? Here are some examples of, you know, we're trying to be efficient. We're, we're redoing a road. Make sure you lay lay the cable at the same time or, or, exactly. or be efficient in terms of getting some of these approval processes, getting some of the red tape out of the way so we can get these projects done. So it, they are addressing some of those issues that people have been concerned about for years, frankly. Um, let me ask you this. One last question. Um, what are some of the issues you think the legislature should be considering uh, when, it, when we talk about this last mile in broadband infrastructure projects? Well, a big issue is how to program new funding that's going to be coming in for last mile broadband infrastructure projects from the federal infrastructure bill that was signed into law November of last year. Uh, it includes about $65 billion in new funding for broadband infrastructure, of which about two thirds is grants um, to the states and other territories. And so the state will receive a minimum of 100 million, but likely is going to receive hundreds of millions of dollars more over the next several years. Um, so we want to make sure that's programmed alongside what we're already doing in, in a you know effective and cost efficient way. 
Um, another issue is how to evaluate the grants that are actually made to make sure that you know, those folks that are supposed to be served actually subscribe and are served with the new uh, broadband available. And lastly, just to make sure the legislature has oversight of this agreement and is looking at everything from these last mile projects to the middle mile network. Um, and, and that active participation and oversight is important to make sure the goals of the agreement are achieved. Yeah, uh, it's as per usual, the legislative analyst has come up with some really good recommendations that hopefully the legislature is going to take a close look at. I want to thank our guest, Brian Metzger from the Nonpartisan Legislative Analyst Office for joining us. If you want to stay current on state and local politics, you can log on to our website at mattyinstitute.com. This is Mark Kepler for the Matty Report. Thanks for joining us. The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ. So with all this money being made available to close the digital equity gap, what are Valley Schools doing to help close the digital divide? Up next, we'll discuss two different models, one from a large urban Valley School District and one from a small rural Valley School District. As you'll see, these models show that the solution is not one size fits all, but rather the best solutions are tailored to the size and geographic location of the district. There are at least two common denominators, however, for each successful model. First, each district began planning projects to address the digital divide well before the pandemic struck. As a result, they are now well positioned to scale up as more federal and state dollars become available. Second, each successful district focused on providing connectivity to the broader community, not just to the students who are attending their schools. While this wider lens may impact eligibility for some educationally restricted funding, it underscores the fact that focusing funding too narrowly on a strictly educational only focus is actually counterproductive. So what two valid districts are we talking about? Fresno Unified and Lindsay Unified, two districts that could not appear to be more different. One, Fresno Unified, is one of the largest districts in the state. The other, Lindsay Unified, one of the smaller ones. We'll hear from key administrators at both districts who started planning for the future of distance learning well before the pandemic. What exactly did they do? How do they see digital education being offered in the post-pandemic period? And what do they see as the longer-term impact of digital education on the traditional brick-and-mortar model that has dominated K-12 education for over 100 years? Those conversations in a moment. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Now, Fresno Unified School District is one of the largest school districts in the state. As a result, their challenges are the same as most districts, only more so. One of those challenges has been how to address the digital divide between its more wealthy and poor areas. Our guests have been tasked with finding a solution. They are Tani Lundberg, who is the uh, Fresno Unified School District's Chief Technology Officer, and Don Soyintasan, I hope I said that right, um, who's uh, FUCSD's Director of Learner Support. I welcome both of you to the Matter Report Valley News Edition. Thank you for having us. Thanks, um, Mark, for having us. So, Tammy, I mean, we're talking about uh, Fresno Unified. It's a huge district. Um, my understanding is it's the third largest district in the state. It's got over 73,000 students. What are the demographics like at, at Fresno Unified? Sure. So we are the third largest uh, district in the state of California. 88% of our students are economically disadvantaged. Uh, in fact, we're the second most impoverished district in the country. So when we talk about digital divide. You know, let's stop one first. That's an amazing statistic uh, This in the country. Wow. Right. Right. So, yeah, when we talk about the digital divide, um, you know, which in our case is the gap between students that have access to computers and internet and those that don't, 
our students and families are very familiar with that divide. We also have about 20% of our students who are English learners and uh, a little over 10% of our students with disabilities. So, you know, that divide can be even wider for the students in those groups, right, without the proper language and accessibility supports. Yeah, Don, when it comes to student access to computer devices and reliable internet services, I mean, how have those numbers changed over time? Have things gotten better? Have they stayed the same? Uh, things have gotten a lot better. I mean, pre-COVID, our district really worked hard to ensure students had access to a working laptop while at school. Um, you know, over the years, we funded a computer refresh program that provided laptops to schools to make class sets so that every student had one when they were in a particular class. So after COVID, um, we accelerated our plans to go one-to-one, -one, which meant we would provide a district-issued laptop to any of our 73,000 students that needed one for remote learning. I hope you got I hope you got a discount on that. That's a lot of laptops. We did, <laughs> but we worked really hard with our partners to kind of even get those devices. Luckily, we had a great relationship with Lenovo, who were able to secure a lot of devices mm -hmm. for us as we went through COVID. Um, yeah, COVID, I mean, really exposed the digital divide we had in our community. You know, um, many of our families weren't quite ready, uh, digitally ready for remote learning. So um, there were thousands of families that didn't have reliable internet um, to do remote learning. So we kind of partnered with T-Mobile and their 10 million project, uh, and we're able to provide our students that needed reliable internet and mobile hotspots. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's one thing about about COVID. I mean, it really exposed that that digital divide. I mean, we knew it existed, but it really exposed it. And I would say on the flip side of that, you know, we, at the university, we've obviously we did distance learning uh, during the pandemic, and there are some positives that came out of it. I mean, one of the things that was nice is like, for example, uh, I taped on video lectures, and so students then had access to those twenty four seven, which was really you know kind of a nice thing. And go back and review things. That actually was somewhat helpful. You know, um, I admit, Don, that I do not know much about technology. I think we talked earlier before we got on here about the fact that my daughter refers to me as a boomer um, and not in a positive way. Um, so my, my knowledge of technology is somewhat limited. Uh, so for folks like me, I wonder if you could help us here. Uh, give us kind of a mini tutorial on, on key uh, technical terms. Like you see this term LTE. What's an LTE? And, and I'm sure I should know that. But are there other you know, key technical terms our audience ought to know? Yeah, sure. Um, so LTE stands for long-term evolution, uh, which is a standard for cellular wireless data transmission. Most of us know is like 4G LTE or the current iteration, which is 5G LTE, which is, promises like even faster data transmission. Um, the faster the transmission rate, you know, allows you to watch Netflix on your phone, YouTube videos, and okay, that I understand. virtual interviews. <laughs> over a cellular connection, which, you know, wasn't possible 10 years ago. Yeah, uh, and it's amazing. I mean, it, and it's getting faster and faster and faster. Um, yeah. Any other terms that, that folks ought to know when they're thinking about these topics? Yeah, so um, a couple funny ones. I mean, we've got, you know, Bluetooth, uh, which is short range connections between devices. You got, you know, your phone, your um, laptop, your refrigerator has Bluetooth. Um, another term is bandwidth, which is um, the measurement of your speed of your internet connection. Um, let's see what else we've got. Um, so 
phishing, not the type of phishing that we normally think of, but phishing in a cybersecurity sense is when somebody is trying to send you an email pretending to be someone you trust to try to gain some confidential information about you. Do you have that? Do you have situations like that, like security issues with with your technology with students? I'm assuming that a lot of parents might be somewhat concerned about that. Tammy, do you want to weigh in on this? I would love to. We see that every day, right? Phishing is rampant, uh, not just in Fresno Unified, but in K-12 districts, in the industry in general. Uh, And it's something that we're spending a lot of time on. We're spending a lot of time on tooling that identifies phishing emails so that we don't have emails come into the district that try to trick our staff into giving up usernames and passwords. Uh, And we're also doing quite a bit of education. We're rolling out some online education so that people can get an understanding of cybersecurity in general, but more specifically phishing to keep themselves secure at home, right? This isn't just a a school district or a work thing. Uh, People see these kind of emails or tech messages at home where it looks like someone you trust until all of a sudden, you know, you see the word Microsoft misspelled or something. Yeah, it's not, it's not yeah. leaving you a million dollars. It's, it's, it's much more sophisticated. And, and, you know, even my, my, my mom uh, had a situation where she thought her granddaughter was having a problem in London with finances. And she called, thankfully, she called me up and said, do I, do I wire the money? No, don't do that. Um, so yeah, that have, I think a lot of parents who are also worried that their kids are vulnerable to, uh, you know, to the internet and, and what can happen there. So providing that level of protection, I think is, is really important. You know, Tammy, I wanted to ask you, um, I understand you developed something called a personal learning initiative. Can you give us the specifics on that kind of the who, what, when, where, why, how, um, and what impact has it had on student outcomes? You bet. So back in 2016, we started personalized learning initiative, we call it PLI. Um, And it's one of many shifts that we've made to help improve student outcomes. Uh, It really focuses on kind of a collaborative learning culture, which isn't new. Uh, That in and of itself isn't new. But what PLI does is introduces teachers to digital tools so that they can design new learning experiences. Uh, And those experiences are really meant to allow students to have choice Uh, to have voice in in what they learn and how they learn it, and then to collaborate with other student groups to really um, use those digital tools and kind of deepen their learning. We partnered, as part of PLI, we partnered with Microsoft uh, and and other partners to really measure the effect of PLI and to make sure that it was having the impact on students that we wanted. Uh, It definitely showed that there were more collaborative learning sessions with students in their classrooms, There was more use of technology uh, to give students rapid feedback and direct them to resources if they needed help on a particular topic. Uh, And then we saw a lift in state assessment scores as well. So great value. Uh, We started year one back in 2016 with 220 teachers. We're now sitting at over 1,000. It's one of many of the programs that we use to focus on student outcomes. Uh, and it's one of the things, you know, that really has helped us to close that digital divide, providing students with their own laptops, access to the internet so that they can use those rich digital resources has really been key to helping them and, and allowing us to see those student outcomes to lift. Yeah, it's one of the concerns is that the feeling was that you, always, always, you already have an achievement gap between some of the you know, richer students and poorer students. 
and they're thinking, oh gosh, if we add now technology, the lack of technology for the poor students, they don't have the laptop or they don't have the internet access, that's just gonna exacerbate that gap that already exists. But actually you've kind of turned a negative into a positive because you've really ramped up uh, the internet uh, use and, and computer usage by some of the poor students providing laptops, for example, um, and then actually closing the divide. And what you're seeing that is actually in a lot of districts, the, the disadvantaged students are, are moving forward at a quicker rate than the average overall population of students. So it's actually happened to close that achievement gap, which is which is kind of great. So Tim, I want to get your impression also of kind of the disadvantages. I mean, there, we've talked about some advantages. From your perspective, what are some of the disadvantages of, of distance learning? Sure. So one of the things that we struggle with, we see students struggle with with distance learning is not having that connection with their peers, with site leaders and teachers, right? It's that social emotional piece that is so important for students to experience as they go through their K-12 education. Um, and also to have those connections with caring adults at their sites, right? Their teachers, their site leaders, other staff on campus. Uh, so I think that's really the downside. You know, distance learning works really well for some students, students that have challenges from a, a transportation standpoint or a health standpoint. Uh, but in general, that social emotional piece is really important. For yeah, I, I, would, I would think that if, if, frankly, if the parents are involved at home, then probably not so big of a problem, right? But if you need support, because your parents are, they're both working and they're exhausted, you probably do need that school support. And then you're, that was really missing during the, during the pandemic. But I wanna ask you this, I'm, I'm wondering about your thoughts, Tammy, about the future of education and technology. Where is this all heading? I mean, remote 24 seven learning, uh, the end of the brick and mortar school buildings. I mean, where are we heading with this? Yeah, great question. You know, we know two things about the future, right? One. There's no turning back from technology and education. The shift that we saw to remote learning transformed education forever. So we're going to continue to see an expansion of that. Um, as Don mentioned earlier, within Fresno Unified, we went from a couple hundred students in our eLearn Academy to several thousand. So um, higher ed institutions have done the same. I don't think we'll see the end of brick and mortar schools anytime soon, but I do think we'll see continue to see expansion of remote learning opportunities. And then the other thing is, we're gonna to continue to see technology innovation, right? Many of the jobs that our students are heading toward aren't even jobs yet um, in industries that are just starting to exist. If you look at automotive and electric vehicles or robotics in manufacturing and medicine, uh, equipping our students with technology skills is really, really critical for their future. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. Well, I wanna thank our guests Tammy Lundberg and, and Don Soyentisan, I hope I said that right again, I apologize if I didn't, um, for joining us today. You know, when we come back, we're gonna talk about the challenges of, of a small Valley school district when it's dealing with this issue. That conversation in a moment, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. The Maddie Institute has become one of the most active public policy institutes in California because of support of people like you. Because of that support, the Maddie Institute has highlighted San Joaquin Valley issues that are often overlooked by those in Sacramento and Washington. If you want the Valley to have a strong voice, and you believe in a fact-based, bipartisan, problem-solving approach to politics and public policy, please consider joining us as a Maddie Associate. You can learn more at maddieinstitute.org. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. The Lindsay Unified School District has been specifically cited by the Public Policy Institute of California as an example of someone who's doing a local initiative that's working. What exactly have they done? Our guest is Peter Sankinson, who is the Director of Technology at the Lindsay Unified School District. Uh, welcome to the Maddie Report. Thanks for having us, happy to be here. 
Um, so first of all, I just want to get some information about uh, Lindsay Unified. You know, where is it? How many students do you have? What are the demographics? Give us a little background on the school district. Certainly. So here in Lindsay, California, we are located in pretty much rural central California, smack dab between Bakersfield, California and Fresno, California. We're a school district of approximately 4,300 uh, learners. I may use learners and students interchangeably. Uh, we do have our own vocabulary out here trying to bring education up to the 21st century. So some of our vocabulary may vary a little bit. So we refer to our students as learners because we believe everyone is a lifelong learner. You're always learning, you're always a learner. Our learner population, our student population out here is largely Hispanic. Uh, we are a very migrant community. Um, a lot of our learners, a lot of our families um, are migrant workers. Uh, so that, that's a lot of our population out here. We have uh, a large part of our population uh, has English as a second language. Um, so that's a very important thing for us to remember for a lot of our students uh, coming in and out of our school district is that uh, we may encounter language barriers from time to time. We are a 100% free and reduced meal uh, for all of our students out here in Lindsay. So all of our students are eligible for free meals uh, all day, every day. Um, so it, sound, it sounds like I mean, you're pretty representative of some of these small communities in rural California. Um, you know that, that that are dealing with some of these issues of students that that speak you know another language at home um, or relatively low income uh, you know that that situation. So you're dealing with some some challenges. And as we move toward you know education that's based on you know the internet and having you know the devices that help you connect to the internet internet, but that becomes an issue. So I want to ask you, you know, the internet seems to become a bigger issue around 2010. Uh, certainly, COVID has made it even more so. But I'm just wondering what portion of your student population have access to the internet at home? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Uh, internet did become much more of an issue around 2010, a little before that. Um, really, it goes back to um, largely the need for internet being baked into our strategic design for our school district. Uh, back in 2007, we brought in the community uh, to help us design our strategic design for our district. And we had the community tell us, what are your expectations? And one of those things was 24 seven uh, access to online curriculum, high quality learning materials online. But we found that, uh, you know, 60% and greater of our student population didn't have stable, reliable internet at home. Uh, so we tried several different things. And at the end of the day, ultimately, um, we found that we functionally need to act as an ISP for our learners to make sure they have access to that educational content 24-7 like our families asked for. You know, one of the things that we've certainly seen that with COVID at the university, you know, more online learning. And one of the things, I, you know, I think there's, there's a, some of an advantage to that. And that's, for example, in some of my classes, I put the lectures, the video lectures online that students can access 24-7. It also means, you know, they can go back and listen to it again. Um, and I think that's been very helpful. I'm assuming, have you seen an improvement in scores with students with, with the use of technology or has it been diminished? How's that uh, work? Absolutely. We, we've seen um, great strides and great improvement um, by our learners by using technology. Um, you may be familiar with, or some of your uh, listeners might be familiar that uh, Lindsay Unified is working off a PBS model, performance-based uh, learning out here. So we have uh, some learners that are able to move at their own own pace and excel uh, beyond 
uh, traditional uh, educational structures for um, advancement in any given content area, but it also affords them the ability to, you know, uh, every, every learner uh, learns at different times in different ways. Um, so it affords them the ability to spend more time and go back and put more focus on areas that they're having difficulty in. Yeah, I mean, one of the big challenges in the Valley are these areas that, that really don't have great internet access. I'm just wondering how you address that issue you know, of ensuring students have access to the internet outside of classroom hours and when they're off campus. I mean, you hear these stories you know, during the pandemic that people were sitting in you know, the McDonald's parking lot so they could connect to, the, or the Starbucks parking lot so they could you know, connect to the Wi-Fi. Um, how, how does Lindsay Unified handle that situation? Absolutely, and we, we had some learners at the beginning, um, not for COVID, but at the beginning of doing this project where we experienced similar, um, and we found that to be unacceptable for learners having to go to McDonald's, Starbucks, et cetera, as you mentioned. Um, so we basically became an ISP ourselves for the school district. We spoke with other local wireless ISPs. Uh, we are functionally a wireless ISP, but we don't ask our students or families to pay for anything. We pay for everything from service to the hardware. And um, some may be familiar with the E-rate program. It's not an E-rate eligible program. So we pay for everything um, at our district level through our general funds. Um, various. So you're not getting any, any state or federal dollars to help pay for this? No, we were able to leverage some of the um, ESSER funding, some of the COVID relief funding uh, to expand our existing network. Um, we offer various uh, wireless service options, be it point to multipoint, um, leveraging CBRS, the community broadband um, service, as well as uh, the EBS spectrum that some districts and counties may have access to. Uh, so we offer a multitude of wireless technologies to ensure that every one of our students, be it living in a house, living in an apartment, living in Section 8 housing, um, if they're tenants where they can't install dishes, or even if we have foster or homeless learners, we have solutions for everybody. Yeah, I'm just, you know, one thing I, I saw is something about citizens broadband radio. How, how does that play into this? What is that and how does it play into this? So what that is, um, there's become more hardware, more available in the last several years that's um, more designed for educational institutions or businesses to uh, create their own private LTE networks. Um, it, it's basically very similar to LTE, very similar to a cellular service uh, that reaches far and wide. And there's various models you can use, um, be it free, or you can go with more powerful transmitters that require subscription, but basically affords us the ability to provide hotspot-like devices, um, again, for those students in apartment complexes or other locations, where we can offer them these hotspots that are connected to our network um, through use of these CBRS radios. Um, so that, that's something we're able to use in our area. Being a rural community, it works very well. Um, I can imagine that in some urban areas, it might not be a solution that's um, as usable for some institutions, but for us, it works very well. It's very cost-effective and uh, just furthers our inventory of possible solutions to get internet to our students. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking, you know, you're the director of technology, you know, back in the day, you know, that might have been meant something completely different when I was in school. Um, but I'm thinking that, you know, your position is becoming increasingly important in school districts. I mean, what do you see? How do you see the future of distance learning um, and your role in it? Certainly. I mean, it wasn't too long ago. I mean, I say within the last decade or so, some people might think that's 
a long time. It doesn't feel like a long time. Um, you know, we had the traditional model of, you know, a teacher in a classroom had a desktop computer. They had their overhead projectors. Office staff had a computer in their office. We really moved towards a model of being one-to-one -one with devices. Every student has a device that's appropriate for their content level. Um, our TK1 classes are using iPads. Uh, second through six, uh, second through eighth using uh, Chromebooks, our high school using predominantly laptops. So every, we've really moved to a model of everybody kind of has their own mobile device. Um, far fewer needs of um, technical staff needing to manage issues in your traditional classroom setting. And it's much more so having models and structures in place to uh, be able to support these devices on the go, um, wherever the learners may be. It's, it's very different than it was a decade ago. Um, it, it's definitely, uh, it, it's a new environment, it's a new world. Well, for I, I, can, I can tell you, you know, um, I, I bought my daughter, you know, a whole set of encyclopedias, spent way too much money because I figured, okay, she's gonna use it because this is what I used when I was a kid. And she's literally never used it. She goes, dad, why would I use that when I can go on the internet um, and you really think about it, the access, you know, the, the ability to access all that information on the internet um, is just incredible uh, in terms of you know, how students can learn and what they learn. It's going to be careful about getting it from appropriate sources, but it, it can be really terrific. Um, it's really interesting to hear what Lindsay Unified is doing. Um, a great example. I would encourage others to kind of take a look at what you guys are doing uh, as, a, as a model uh, to how rural districts can handle this, this challenge. I want to thank uh, Peter Thompson, uh, the Director of Technology with the Unified School District. And once they current in state and local politics, you can sign up for our newsletter, Maddie Daily, by just logging on to our website at maddieinstitute.com. This is Mark Chuckle for the Maddie Report. Thanks for joining us. The Maddie Report. Valley Views Edition is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ. The Maddie Institute is your public affairs institute. We are an alliance of the Valley's four public universities, Fresno State, California State University Bakersfield, Stanislaus State, and UC Merced, that have joined forces to better serve the residents of the San Joaquin Valley. Our goal is to support a fact-based, bipartisan, problem-solving approach to the public policy challenges we face as a region, state, and nation. You can learn more about the activities of the Maddie Institute by logging onto our website at maddieinstitute.com.